and welcome to Freya's F1 Fridays, where it does what it says on the tin. We talk about F1 on Fridays. Welcome to my co-host today, James Baldwin. Good to see you. Which state, country, you know, realm of existence are you in at the moment? Thank you for not singing all of that at me uh, as the opening for this episode. Uh, I am still in a very soggy Victoria, uh, though I am flying to Canberra this evening for the best band in the world that uh, I've got tickets for early next week, which is The Darkness, and I'm very excited to be seeing them again. Highly debatable points all round. So I am very surprised not to see you wearing floaties in a canoe Mm. Um, given Melbourne weather at the moment. And Robbie Williams is going to have a lot to say about the darkness being the best. Anyway, that's it's fine. We, won't, we don't need to nitpick about <laughs> those things. And also we had an amazing first-hand review during the week um, of a Cayman-based listener actually who said that she was surprised by the superb quality of my singing voice. So shout-out to Nicoletta. You're welcome. <laughs> it wasn't just you in the mirror. It was actually a real human being, was it? Yeah, Nicoletta is my Italian alter ego. <laughs> <laughs> Reflection. Yeah, I understand. Good. All right, let's get stuck into some news of the week. There's not a lot to cover this week, um, obviously being between races, but we did have a few interesting enough things come out, some of it surprising, some of it not so surprising. In fact, none of it really surprising. But let's start out with the financial review outcome when it comes to the alleged, no longer alleged cost cap breaches. So just a quick note on the financial review and kind of where that comes from, I suppose, before we get stuck into it. The financial regulations were introduced to F1 2021 season. Obviously, the intention behind this was to try and limit spending within the championship um, in order to try and kind of increase, I suppose, the long, long-term sustainability or viability of the championship and also to try and bring teams closer together when it comes to performance between com- competitors and ultimately create better racing. Um In terms of what they found after they investigated last year's uh, returns was looking at Aston Martin, who were considered to be in procedural breach of the financial regulations, and then Red Bull, who are considered to be in procedural and minor overspend breaches of the financial regulations. So basically Aston Martin filled out their forms wrong (laughs) and then Red Bull filled out their forms wrong and spent somewhere between a dollar and 1.25, 7.25 million more than they were meant to. And we don't know exactly how much it is yet. The FIA haven't disclosed that amount of money yet, but, you know, it could be a grand here or there on too many wings or it could be close to seven and a quarter million dollar mark. Um, so it's interesting because obviously there's a lot of speculation and some pretty heavy um, allegations being thrown around before this result had been returned. Um, it all seems pretty minor and, you know, a minor breach is considered to be less than 5% of the cost cap, which gives us that that 7.25, which means that our resulting penalties are likely to not be too significant. What do you see coming and are you surprised by the outcome, James? Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, the significant amount of conversation, shall we say, or speculation or tinfoil beanie wearing that's going on on Twitter at the moment and amongst many (laughs) others on other Formula One podcasts about what's going to happen, what Rebel have done, how bad it is and the rest of it. Uh, At the end of the day, uh, firstly, this whole thing about catering is is, has come out from nowhere of any real (laughs) 
<laughs> points. So as you said, it could be absolutely nowhere. spending money on wings or spending money on wings. Adrian Newey loves some chicken wings and that's all he's wings. been eating <laughs> and then designing wings. I just don't understand where that comes from. And it, it, it serves, again, the purpose of where, where we get our information from in this sport is incredibly important. And as I said last week, racer.com. Just use that as your as your place to go to because if there is any speculation worthwhile talking about, Chris Medland, Michael Laminato will write about it and it will be considered in a decent article there. Please don't go on Twitter and find out information and all the catering stuff. I'm here for the memes, Red Bull catering memes. Yes, please jump onto our Discord, oh, yeah. <laughs> the F1 meme channel. Brilliant content. Dump it in there, please, because it absolutely <laughs> makes my day when, when we see some fantastic stuff in that. But I think for... At the end of the day, we just have to wait until till the FIA actually release what exactly has happened. Um, I would say that it's very important that the FIA do release everything that they possibly can um, because if it is a minor breach of a dollar here or there, as you said, um, then that's fine. I, I feel like Max's championship for 2021 is, is probably pretty safe at this point. Uh, I don't think there would be yeah. a significant amount of... Um, you know, sporting penalties applied, it might be a public reprimand, it might be a fine. But again, you know, I know the season is long. I know we're all looking for drama because Drive to Survive is still a long way away in February or March or whenever it's going to be released for next year. (laughs) But everyone, let's just relax and let the proceedings go as they will. It's the same as Oscar Piastri. It took quite a while for us to figure out exactly what was going on. And then when it happened, we moved on so quickly. too rational of you, James, though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's far too rational of you. No, we're we're all here for the drama. So the you know someone says that they overspent on donuts or wings. It's absolutely fine by me. But like you said, <laughs> how am I? After all of that, I went looking for it. I, <laughs> are you saying how are you the rational voice in this podcast? Yeah, I was about I to say how the hell did but that end up I happening after went, everything that I, I've been <laughs> through since 2019? How am I the rational one? And I get stumped with this hat. I don't even have a Daniel Ricciardo hat to put on. Ridiculous. I mean, that's. I mean, that's still debatable, but um, it's never far away um, as to how rational you actually are. But it's. (laughs) (laughs) But like. Like you said, like there's only a couple of options really that they have now available to them just because it is a minor breach. So basically if I have said that they either enter into a settlement which is called an accepted breach agreement with the competitor in case um, and if they agreed that then it's basically fine, there'll be some sort of small fine or whatever they have to have to pay um, and if they don't agree to that then it goes to the cost cap administration and it becomes more significant in terms of going in front of a panel and that type of thing but they have already said that look it's a minor um, a minor overspend which means that it's going to be some sort of financial penalty or minor sporting penalty you know deducting points and affecting a championship is not a spine a min- is not a minor sporting penalty so like you said I think the championships pretty safe um, at this point in the season with the championship locked in. We are always looking, oh, maybe not quite yet. We spoke too soon. But um, in this case, I think Max is Max is in the clear. But I think you make an interesting point and a good point in terms of saying they they do need to declare what's actually happened here in order to kind of you know, maintain that both relevance but also integrity. If everything kind of stays behind closed doors, 
I think a lot of fans, particularly the ones who are supporters of the smaller teams mm. who where, where this cost cap is particularly important, are not going to be too happy about that. Yeah, and it comes back to what happened a couple of years ago with Ferrari and the FIA and, you know, the settlement that happened that was behind closed doors and everyone kind of knew what was happening, um, but, of course, the speculation runs rife about the team. The team might have been fine, the team might not have been fine, but by not announcing to fans and the general public what exactly is going on I think is a bit ridiculous. So I think it's very important that no matter what, clarity is sought and information is distributed because, again, as we've seen, otherwise rumours run rife and it does the sport absolutely no good. People are going to start switching off uh, because they can, can't see that the sport's actually taking itself seriously and following its own rules. Rightly said. And, and it's also, like you said, people start going, well, we can push the boundaries a little bit and the consequences are not too significant. You know, if, if they get a bit of a slap on the wrist for this and, and or it's not made public as to what the reprimands were, then people start understanding where the boundaries might be um, when it comes to, you know, okay, well, two million was a, an apology, <laughs> seven million's not. Um, mm. But that can, I know is in the grand scheme of things as well, it is ultimately less than 5%, but that's still a lot of money. You know, whether that's yeah. wings on the table or wings on the car, that's $7 million worth of wings. Oh, yeah. Parts of wings. I don't know. It's just, but people need to <laughs> Good. Let's keep talking about money though. I'm going to move this own, your own conversation along because this W Series thing is absolutely the biggest ridiculous, unbelievable, mind-blowing thing to me that no one has immediately jumped to the rescue of this series so it can race the final three rounds. This I'm disappointed narrative that is coming out from all of these people with money will be disappointed and invest in this series because it needs it and it is a bloody important thing to have on the calendar. Agreed. And thank you for raising it in that it is one of those things where, like you said, where people are so quick to respond with words and so few are quick to respond with actual actions. And it is a really interesting one because I know that it's not a black and white issue when it comes to you know, what is the best, most effective way of increasing the competitive nature of women's motorsport. You know, there's mm. a lot of people who will be saying, well, w-, w Series isn't really sustainable. We should really be putting the money into trying to get um, – women competitive in Formula 3, Formula 2, for example. But they've got nowhere to race at the moment mm. and the money is such a massive factor in that obviously the big issue is or the big kind of reason we can have the W Series is because you don't have to buy into it. So it's it's so frustrating to see. And they sort of started talking about it at Singapore in terms of saying, you know, his funding hasn't come through. They started talking about basically a bit of a soft entry into the fact that we're not going to be racing our remaining three races of the year, which they did then confirm um, since Singapore in saying that the decision has been made to focus on longer-term fundraising um, and the process of that in order, in order to enable the longevity and financial health of W Series in 2023 so we won't be racing their remaining series. It's so upsetting to see and, like I said, there's all these people saying we're really disappointed. Oh, that's so frustrating to see. W Series is so important. Okay, cool. Pull out your wallet then, in all honesty, and and show us how important it is to you. And the other thing which is frustrating, and there's a few few people who have posted <clears throat> this um, on various Instagrams and whatnot, is how poorly it's being covered. 
So I looked at a few different um, articles about this, trying to find different takes and opinions, and there were so few, like so many of the the written journalistic pieces are just rephrased versions of the statement released by W Series mm. um, and, and the kind of the more in-depth piece that came with that. And there is one um, article which is well worth reading, which is by Hazel Southwell for ESPN, and she's written a great opinion piece there. But besides that, it's not being covered. You know, mm. it's this is actually massive. W Series doesn't have any money, will not race. They've cancelled the rest of their season, which does make Jamie Chadwick the 2022 champion. And let's be clear, that's well-deserved and was very likely to happen anyway. Um, she had a pretty commanding lead. She was 50 points clear in the Drivers' Championship um, and this is her her third year in a row winning that championship. Again, well-deserved and very likely to happen anyway. Um, but even she said, I wanted to see this finished on track. You know, we yeah. all thought we had more races to go and that's not the case. It's just exceptionally disappointing because it, it is that is to me a very clear statement by motorsports in general that they don't think the W Series is serious enough to be a thing that should be there to fix this problem that we've got in diversity in motorsport. Now I know you and I do the Extreme E podcast, and you know that sport was created with two drivers, one car has to be one female, has to be one male. And we've seen that over the course of two years worth of racing, many now of the females are faster than the males because they have had the same opportunity to drive the same machinery around the same tracks over the course of two years. Now, I know that there is a conversation about build up and different body types and G-forces when it comes to sport. And to be honest, I don't fully understand all of that. It's something that I would like to know more of because I don't. I think it's very much an easy thing to just throw out there and go, oh, well, women are built differently so they can't drive Formula One cars. Well, when was the last time we actually had a proper opportunity for someone to do that? If Jamie Chadwick had to train herself physically with Michael Italiano or in any of the other trainers, she would get herself, I believe, to a point where she could do it. Um, the problem is... She's absolutely a deserving champion, but the lip service that is being paid to her is like, oh, well, you deserve to be in Formula One. Well, let's give her a real shot about being in Formula One by putting her in a competitive Formula Two car. You know, if there is enough money and enough sponsorship behind Williams or anything else, we should be looking at Art Grand Prix, Prima, Prima, not a fruit box, Prema, uh, something in one of the teams that actually (laughs) is decent enough to put a competitive car on track and give her an opportunity because putting her in a car at the back of the grid at Formula 2 and saying, oh, well, she's not fast enough is ridiculous. And I think it is, again, it, it is for me, looking what Extreme E's managed to do, there is a real opportunity here for that. But the wider W Series as a whole, we have now a significant amount of people who, freelancers as well, who are doing um, engineering work to these teams, um, PR all the way through from the actual series itself through all the teams now without work for the remainder of this season. And my LinkedIn feed is full of people saying, due to the closure of W Series, I'm now available for the rest of the season. And the problem is there isn't going to be the work for them around. So now you've also talking about people's livelihoods, not just the drivers, but everyone else involved with that sport who no longer has the ability potentially to make any money. I just think it's ridiculous. We've got so much money coming into Formula One and other motorsports from around the world and different major significant contributors when it comes to sponsorship. How this isn't a conversation within F1 to say, you know what, 
this actually should be part of a bigger overall arching thing. Is it actually a solution to the problem? No, but it is certainly in the direction of what it should be, which is giving an opportunity to females to race. Yes, it's in its own thing within the Formula 2, Formula 3, Formula 4 category, but how good that it gets to actually continue because F1 stand up and go, you know what, we're actually going to pick this up. I think it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. I just cannot believe that we're even in this position. It is. And like you said, we talk a lot about, um, obviously when it comes to Formula 1, the drivers and everybody who we see on camera are highly visible in terms of the people who are being involved in here. But it was something that really struck me when we interviewed um, Nick Fry back with McLaren Applied and he said, you know, we were going through that whole, you know, prior to just prior to Braun GP going, this wasn't just about do we race next season. He's like, I've got 800 people's mm. jobs on the line if I can't figure out a solution. And that was something that really hit me. And it's not to say that we don't know but we don't think about it because out of sight, out of mind, right, all of the other people who are impacted by this type of decision making, and yeah, like you said, they're now out of the work, out of work for the rest of the season, and it's towards the end of the F one season. So there, even people who we know work across the both both of the categories. Well, you know, you've got what a couple of races left, right? Like, mm. it's it's not good timing to be trying to pick up work in in Formula One. And I think you make as again another good point when it comes to okay, fine, we'll put a female in Formula Two, we'll give them a terrible car at the back of the grid, and I, and I hate to say it, but I think it's probably what's happened likely to happen again with Tatiana, Tatiana Calderon yeah. where people say, well, yeah, we put her in F2 and she couldn't she couldn't cut it. It's like, yeah, but her car was terrible. And even in that car where people knew that she was going to be racing in the last <coughs> minute, it's still not designed for her. She still hasn't received the excellence in training because people don't know how to train women up to a Formula 1 standard. And yet you've got someone like Jamie Chadwick who is so dominant in her series going, where else am I meant to compete? Um, and it's so hard watching women get to this point in their careers and going, there's nowhere else to go. And to say that people don't watch women's sport is just absolute Well, you're, think, you're wrong. It's so <laughs> it makes me so angry and it's been now proven over so many times both in local and international sport. We think about the Lionesses, we can think about AFLW, oh, like whichever. Yes women's sporting series you want to talk about. I remember standing outside the Icon Stadium in Carlton, <laughs> desperate trying to get into one of the women's football, ga- football games, couldn't get in, um, instead just watched the sunset over Carlton with a beer in the park watching it on YouTube <laughs> or something like that because there was literally like standing room was gone. Mm. And, you know, if you give them the platform, the spectators, the athletes, it, it'll happen. And I think what's so frustrating with this decision is that you've removed the platform. And I know it's not a perfect solution. I don't think anyone who is arguing for the continuance of W Series is arguing that it's a perfect solution to getting women to the highest pinnacle of motorsport. But give me your alternatives. Well, you know, like yeah. show me your other options. And for all the people saying how important it is, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Democracy is not the perfect solution, but allegedly it's the best form of government. We still carry on with it. So why not do the same thing for you? Yeah, I mean, look, I could go on about this for hours. I'm sure you imagine it's something I'm pretty passionate about when it comes to women's sport, generally speaking. But this is just one that, you know, it's a fair way behind the times for for a lot of reasons and this was going a long way um, in a positive direction and this is a very frustrating setback and unfortunately what I find behind the back of my couch isn't going to quite going to solve the problem. So <laughs> let's keep moving on. Um, 
to somebody who we're making their F free practice debut with Alpha Romeo at Coda, which is Theo Porcher. So we will see VB sitting this one out um, in order to give him the opportunity to run his F1 uh, free practice seat. And he's also been announced as one of the reserve drivers for 2023. So um, Porcher has obviously been with the Souter Academy since uh, 2019, I want to say. And currently in F2, sitting second. We obviously, championship is out of the question now. Do you think that having these, the the kind of rookie drivers in free practice is creating more opportunities or is it just, you know, a bit of a, what's the word, um, Symbolic, you know, symbolic rather than a real opportunity. Yeah. Do you know what I think it's creating disappointment when you have people like Liam Lawson jumping in a car and an Alpha Tauri and he's been a Red Bull junior for as long as he has been um, and, you know, Nick DeFries comes in as a Mercedes reserve driver and fills the seat that allegedly the junior program is supposed to, to have reserved for Red Bull drivers. Um, look, I mean, FP1 outing is fine, but... You know, is it about young bringing young drivers into sport? Well, not really. I think it is. It's paying lip service to a regulation that F1 has, and that's fine. But again, I think it's causing more disappointment because they'll get a taste of the F1 car and go, "Oh my goodness, isn't that amazing?" And then they'll never ever drive it again. You know, I look at Theo Porcher's season in Formula Two, and and Campy said this very very well, which is unusual for him to say anything well in amongst all of his breathing. But Surprising. for him. He, I agree with him that it has been a bit of a dry spell when it comes to phenomenal talent driving in the junior categories at the moment. I think about when Oscar was in F3, that F3 season and even in F2 in a similar time, you know, it was incredible, like really, really good driving, different people in the podium all the time, like the racing was incredibly interesting all the way through. Now, I'm not saying that F2 and F3 isn't interesting anymore, but a pure talent, a standout has not, to me, really come to the floor. And I think Tio Porcher is one of those that is unfortunately in, you know, the wrong spot at the wrong time when it comes to the, you know, the ups and downs of Formula 1, 2 and 3. You know, he said earlier on this season that he didn't want to race in Formula 2 this year to try and force uh, Alfa Romeo Sauber to to pick him up instead of uh, Joe Mm. Guan Yu. But, of course... You know, Joe Guan Yu is bringing this Chinese investment. We're going to China for the first time next year. Alfa Romeo will see a commercial benefit in doing that um, and so will Sauber. So, you know, I think he was, you know, trying to say that in the public domain to force a bit of pressure that didn't exist. So for him to do this is fine, but I don't see him, you know, likely driving in a Formula 1 car anytime soon. You know, we look at the other drivers that are being considered for Williams' seat. Um, Tio Porcher's name is not anywhere near, you know, the the conversation. It's Logan Sargent probably at this point who will get that and they have to wait until super licence points are awarded in Abu Dhabi. Uh, if he doesn't get that, then there's a completely yep. different conversation going on for Williams. It's a long time to wait. <laughs> it's exceptionally long, but that's why we haven't heard anything, I believe, for, for that Williams seat and it will remain open, I think, between mm. now and towards the end of the year and the same with Haas. I doubt we'll get a confirmation about either of those seats until uh, after the chequered flag drops in, in Abu Dhabi. I think it will be really interesting. Like you said, I, I agree that it will take a while for them to confirm those last two seats. But let's say Haas, for example, end up in a position where 
okay, they don't really have any other great options. DR has said I'd rather take a year off and see what's around in 2024. Um, so they decide to re-sign Mick. I think what's really interesting here, and again, this isn't a well, yeah, it's not it's not a criticism of, of Haas necessarily, but it's a matter of thinking about you know future of your drivers. If Mick does sign for next year, they've left until the very last second to see if they get a better offer. They don't. He then pulls it out of the bag next year and starts really performing because he's had a year in these new cars and he starts levelling up with KMAG and everything else. And actually he has an offer on the table at the end of next year. Would he then leave Haas where he hasn't been made to feel particularly valued as a driver? I think those are the types of things which I'm – I'm never not naive enough to say you're going to be at the centre of decision-making when it comes to a sport like Formula One, but we hear it from drivers once they have the chance to remove themselves from, you know, the likes of Red Bull and Mercedes and saying, you know, the second I could and, you know, was going to leave, I was ready to go somewhere at an organisation that really valued me. And while Mick might be too early in his career to be able to have those type of kind of trump cards, I suppose, you know, there's there's a bit of damage that's being done at this point between relationship with potentially Ferrari, Haas, and Mick Schumacher, which I just find interesting. You know, if if he's able to perform well next year, should he ultimately get signed because they can't come up with a, a better option? Um, you know, would he then stick around if he got off got off at another year? Yeah, and this is one of the things you just you just never know what is going to happen down the track. He might be signed to Williams for next year, for all we know. And perform better than Alex Albon because the car suits him better. <laughs> you know, we just you just mm. don't know. And I think, as you say, it's it's like Very Valtteri true. Bottas and Mercedes, right? Toto expected the year to year contracts would push him to do better, where realistically it caused him to be unhappy. Um, and you know, he was stressed most of the time trying to figure out what he was actually going to do, unless he was competitive to Lewis, which. With all due respect to VB, he never was going to be properly, you know, 2019, he he came out of the, the gates absolutely stonking um, and it had all the bad luck in the world put against him when it came to Formula One. So for, for Mick Schumacher, it's a bit of a shame. But as you say, I think, you know, the, the damage is already being done. We don't know the conversations, of course, that are going on behind closed doors. I'm sure Gunter's basically saying, look, we either need someone who's faster or someone who's actually going to bring some cash. And unfortunately, the one-on-one, you know, let's get into the Aldi catalogue for a bit of a photo shoot kind of thing. As much as it causes great content uh, for memes, it's not necessarily where Haas as a team really sees itself. So who knows? Who knows what the future holds for Mick Schumacher? I think, um, though, if it's not, if he's not re-signed and look, you know, is is Hulkenberg going to be any better in that car? I mean, K-Mag is showing that, the car can be good sometimes, but overall as a team, they're not exactly performing to the highest of standards. So I can understand why DR is not looking at it seriously. Mm. Um, but I would suggest when there are flashes of brilliance from KMAG, that's when Gunter and Gene Haas are saying, well, if we had someone who is consistently good, who is a much better top tier driver than Kevin, maybe we can start seeing better results for the car. And that's just a shame for Mick because again his junior year he's sorry his rookie season was alongside Nikita Mazepin who who yeah. absolutely had no idea what he was doing so you had two rookies doing whatever they were doing down the back neither of them learning so I think it's just unfortunate timing again for Mick but uh I mean he's still in the frame for Haas at this point indeed We'll talk about um, Coda next week and everything we're very excited about when it comes to the Austin race, but something which I saw on social media this week just quickly, which makes me even more sad not to be there this year, is the fact that oh, yes. they're playing. 
<laughs> I know. As, as well as Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran, Who? take it or leave him, but, um, Ed, but Green Day um, bringing out my just inner, like, emo teenage Freya. Mm, Going to dye hair black for the event. Uh, that for would the just event. be amazing. Yeah, Happily. I'll tell you about it. Like, honestly, if someone gave me a ticket, if someone gave me a ticket, I would dye my hair back black. Um, well, Coda, if you're listening. If you got me there. Promoter, <laughs> we know you've got tickets probably. <laughs> Let's send us an email. Hello at lakesidedrive.com.au for a subject line, dyeing phrase hair black. Dying Freya's hair black. We perhaps do some money raising for charity along the way. Hey, I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, let's get stuck into our profile of the week. Yes. So this week we're talking about someone who has a slightly different uh, role in comparison to the kind of team, team-based roles that we've been talking on about previously, mm. which is Dr. Valeria Loretti. Now, I suggest that you immediately head over to YouTube to hear her say her own name in her beautiful Italian <laughs> accent rather than me butchering it with my Australian one because it is one of those names that, oh, my goodness, just it's built for their language and, and accent and certainly not for mine. <laughs> but what does she do? So Dr. Loretti is a delivery manager motorsport at Shell. Now, what was interesting for that, I just got, that tells me absolutely nothing about what you do, which is quite similar to a lot of roles in motorsport, quite frankly, and Formula One, where, <laughs> so for example, computational fluid, <laughs> 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 turns out not to be about petrol. Yes. <laughs> Goodness. Um, so when it comes to her title, it doesn't really explain a lot. So basically she leads a team that develops blends and supplies the fuel and lubricants to motorsport partners. And obviously in this context, because we're talking about Formula One, um, that is Ferrari. So just in terms of where we're getting a lot of this information, we do talk about the importance of our sources and that type of thing. She's given some phenomenal interviews with the likes of Girls on Track UK, um, an interview with Helena Hicks and also for the AFR with Peter Kerr as well. So there's lots of um, information out there, but those were two really, really interesting um, interviews which we went back and and listened to, took some notes on to better understand what she does and the impact on the sport as well. But as we always do, let's get stuck into the background. Where did she come from and how did she end up to, in the role that she is in now? So as we have heard from many other of the individuals who have profiled, science was one of her earliest passions and one that she says that she said shared with her dad who was a physicist, um, but also one that you know, when she started showing that ability, um, kind of a natural bent for as well as interest was very much nurtured in the classroom. And again, when it comes to a lot of these Formula One and roles and in the roles and businesses that supply Formula One, it is that passion for science, actually, a lot of the time rather than sport, which is something that as I learn about all of the different roles that are involved in Formula One, perhaps aside from the kind of the journalist type um, positions, it's very much about the science behind it. You know, these people who could have gone off to, whether it's NASA or very, very various, um, uh, you know, aerodynamics businesses and technology businesses and everything else, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see them in any other sport other than Formula One. So that's very much the same for her as well. And in an interview with Females in Motorsport, she says that she had the opportunity to share with her dad, who I mentioned was a physicist, a lot of those questions and sharing knowledge and about science. And that was something that has always really attracted to her 
to that industry. Then when she started taking chemistry lessons um, at school, she thought (laughs) there's a great quote here which I just love which is, wow, chemistry is cool, (laughs) exclamation mark. It's like a science poster (laughs) that you see around the school. It reminds me of the Billy Billy Madison where he's like, science is the coolest. (laughs) (laughs) Like learning is the coolest. Yes, good shout. (laughs) Anyway, so I I love I love that passion and and how clear that was for her early on. But she just said, look, being in the lab, doing things with your hands and kind of seeing reactions, that was something that she really, really enjoyed even pretty early on. Then she went and studied chemistry at university in Italy and then moved to Germany for her PhD. So her thesis was about investigating different analytical methods. So when we think about scientific methods, you're talking about refining and kind of specifying the methods in which you're either testing products or compounds, depending on what your scientific area is. But the reason that she says that was important to her was that it trains you to think in a particular mindset around troubleshooting, testing, um, and learning, because it's all about how do we do this in a more rigorous way. Um, but as she started to do that, she's saying, I also started to learn that that was something that was very much reflected in my character as well, um, which is very apparent when you hear her speak, um, just in terms of she very much comes across as somebody who is always wanting to test and push, how can we do this better? Um, and and ask those questions and never really being kind of content with the outcome as being the best possible outcome. Um, and she does say that that is something that both she'd learned through her kind of more specialised field in chemistry but then also part of her personality that probably allowed her to, you know, eventually achieve the role that that she is currently currently in. And we hear that about a lot of these roles, don't we, James, in terms of saying, you know, this is a combination of all of these things intersecting in terms of my natural ability, things that I love, but then my personality as well as somebody who just always wants to do as well as I possibly can. Yeah, and it's funny that, as you say, it's that's that STEM beginning, the science background that, you know, these kinds of thought processes of what they enjoy doing and why they enjoy studying don't necessarily inherently lead to a career in Formula One or motorsport. But when it does happen or when the job presents itself or, or something happens in terms of someone says, I think you'd be really great for this, suddenly they're in their absolute element and they're pioneering things and people are like, yeah. this is incredible what you're doing. Absolutely. And I think for her, she mentions in terms of after chemistry, a lot of people will go off to jobs in cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, um, perhaps the energy field if they don't go and take the academic route. Um, But for her, she said, I just loved working in a role where I was so close to a product that would so quickly kind of reach your your customer or consumer and has that real practical purpose. And she kind of, she uses that language quite a bit when she talks about studying chemistry, you know, using your hands, really practical, get straight in front of, um, you know, seeing the reactions in front of you. So you can imagine that for her being in an academic environment where it would take decades to make contributions wouldn't be that alignment necessarily in terms of her personality style along with that academic ability and and skill set. So it's amazing that she's found herself in this role. But um, she's kind of said, you know, she said it doesn't sound like the most interesting thing, but it is for a chemist when it comes to working in the fuel industry because you're so much closer to your consumer in comparison to other industries, um, which I thought was quite an interesting one because, again, I just don't really think about it in that way. But 
Dr. Loretti ultimately spent about 15 years in technical roles at Shell. So her previous roles have included product quality lead, fuel scientist, internal communications and fuels marketing support, B2B delivery lead diesel development, diesel development delivery manager. And I share all of this because she mentions that in terms of the role that she's currently in, she's kind of been strategically working to get into the motorsport team and then ultimately into this role for about five to 10 years. Um, And this had become a dream for her over time. So she said that, you know, rather than we'll come back to this when it comes to being kind of a female working in motorsport, she said rather than kind of getting into Shell and then immediately trying to work as quickly as I can to get to that highest job, I saw the team that I wanted to be in and I knew why I wanted to be in it and then said, right, what are my priorities? Well, right now they're a bit different, but long-term that's where I want to be. And she spent that time building the skills that she needed to get there. Um, So we'll come back to that in a moment. But again, just interesting for her because it's a a different way of seeing kind of career progress, I suppose. But in webinar um, I mentioned earlier, which was hosted by Girls on Track in the UK, she explains that she had the opportunity during that time to really understand and build on her own strengths. So beside that kind of academic background, which is almost a, you know, it's kind of your um, kind of cost for entry, I suppose, that everybody who is going for these roles has that academic expertise. At this time, she was really trying to figure out what am I actually good at beyond kind of this the technical area. And so she went and learned about all the other elements of the business. And she basically said, look, turns out I'm a real people person. I'm a social being. Um, I love learning about other roles in the business, not just the one that I'm technically aligned to. So she really went and learned about her strengths, built on those. And in doing so, as a bit of a kind of both deliberate, but then also kind of side effect of that effort, learned about all the different areas of the business as well. So supply chain, compound blending, marketing, stakeholder management, communication, you know, all of these things that you don't learn at university through your chemistry degree, but you do learn through talking to the communications manager, engaging with the different types of engineers and um, speaking to leaders and and all of those different things, really much, very much kind of trying to round out what she would bring to, to Shell as an organisation. So as I mentioned, very much strategically working to get into the motorsport team and then into this role for close to 10 years. Um, and this had become a dream for her. And then a few years ago, Dr. Loretti was ready and looking for a new role within the business. Um, And she said, yes, I've got the technical background, but by this stage, I also had the leadership, communication, stakeholder management skills, and also the experience in the business to actually go for it. Yeah, it looks really, I mean, I'm just reading some of the notes here about the, the role of the Shell products and then how I can only imagine how teams would deal with it over a weekend. I mean, we know how Pirelli sort of works with Formula One and as a supplier of um, parts, but to to be, you know, the lead supplier of lubricants to Ferrari and also being Italian herself. And I can only imagine the kind of cool conversations they would be having in terms of developing things. As you said, it's so close to consumer, like what we get if we go to Shell here or wherever you are, going to get Shell, although they deleted 100 octane from their lineup here. Come on, guys, bring that back, although probably <laughs> unlikely. I need it for my outback. Uh, but 
it's so it's so cool because you are there is a significant <laughs> amount of technical development and I'm pretty mean, sure Subaru did not say that that's necessary, but yes, it's probably <laughs> yes, one hundred octane necessary, ninety one. What's that? It's t- 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 I want more. More is better. Always. That is that is, is what I think every time I go to the pump, and that means I am wrong. <laughs> um, but in terms of like how she's doing stuff and developing stuff technically especially when it comes to Formula One. I mean, Campy and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about, you know, the development of Formula One has probably come to its critical mass now where you're not seeing a lot of that technology flow through to road cars. But, you know, outside of that, we don't know what Pirelli is doing with their rubber compounds and how that's helping them develop their next set of pilot sports, uh, although that's absolutely not the tyre. That's a Michelin anyway. Um, But the same with with Shell and lubricants too. So, in terms of her being able to manage that relationship, I think it's going to be would be bloody awesome to do day to day. Well, a hundred percent. And I'll kind of jumping around a little bit here, but into you mentioned something which I thought was quite fascinating when it comes to the importance of the kind of strategic direction of the sport for Shell's continued kind of motivation to be involved. So if we think back to the eighties and nineties, the fuel that they were using there was basically like yes. rocket fuel. <laughs> yes for me. And, you know, like exactly. Big yes for you, not a big yes for your outback. <laughs> like it's well, you don't not know. something that has, oh, it doesn't <laughs> either. It won't until it blows up in More your boost. face. And that's it. So, <laughs> okay, sure, it delivered like super high power, kind of results, but it was also a massive safety concern, aka blowing up in the outback driver's mm. face. But also for the providers being Shell, for example, and who we're focusing on at the moment, it's not then in the innovation platform that they need it to be for it still to be relevant for them. You know, the value for them being involved in Formula One is being able to translate what they're testing and creating for F1 cars into other platforms. So what we see now is that the fuel com- compounds that they're running are 99% the same as, you know, the types that you'll see in in road fuel as well. So just a, a really interesting point that you raise there. But as you mentioned as well, it's not just fuel when it comes to what she's working with. It is all the other lubricants as well. But she describes it really nicely um, for those of us who don't have a PhD in chemistry in terms of the products that um, Dr. Loretti works with. So first of all, of course, there is the fuel and ultimately, again, very succinctly described by her, it delivers performance, it feeds the engine, it keeps it going. It's like Goes bang. That is what it does. It fuels the engine (laughs) and it does go bang. Um, And in the F1 environment, though, it's highly regulated. So it has Mm. to be really close to what a regular motorist, James in his outback, can actually Mm. go and buy. And (laughs) in terms of the difference between what you fill the Subaru up with in comparison to a Formula One car, she's got the most wonderful simile to explain this where she says F1 fuel is like a tailored dress rather than one you buy off the rack. So the one you buy in the department store, it kind of more or less fits you, but it's not designed for you and it's not perfect. Whereas the tailored dress, it's altered, it's shaped just for you. But both of them at the end of the day are just dresses. I just love it. You that know, is Because awesome. I think when we kind of say it's 99% the same, but it's got to be the same product, but it's not, that to me was actually just a perfect summary, which I thought explained it so well to those of us who are not technical experts in that area. 
But in terms of the other products that she's working with, you've also got the oil, for example, again, another great comparison that Dr. Loretti uses for us, non-technical folk. Um, she says it's like the blood in the engine. Again, you've got to listen to all of this stuff as though <laughs> you're Italian. It's like the blood in the engine. Oh, my God. just I could listen to her all day. Um, but ultimately it goes through all of the parts of the power unit and the key goals are around lubricating the power unit because obviously they need to keep all of those big hot metal parts working next to each other and of course that means that its secondary job well also primary job is cooling as well so as you can imagine with all of that power and output of the power unit the oil has to be highly resistant and keep the whole thing nice and cool and of course now with the limited number of parts that people are able to use we've got the regulations around how many PUs you can use per season it also needs to ensure that it finishes the race in really good shape because we can't be having a new power unit every race because it gets hot and explodes. So obviously that temperature regulation is a really important component here. So in terms of her team and how it works, saying that they work very, very closely with the engineers in Marinello on different stages of both the co-engineering and co-development stages. Um, So at Shell, they need to be understanding how the power unit is working and how the fuel might be able to unlock that extra horsepower, if that is in fact the goal, because different elements are optimised to maximise different performance against the kind of critical or key indicators, which the team will give to them. So much like the strategist saying, the team tells me the goal, I tell them the different ways into how they could achieve that. For Shell, the team is saying, okay, we need extra horsepower or we need more acceleration or we need just kind of efficiency, you know, maybe it's efficiency. And then they say, okay, here's the different compounds that might help us to achieve that using different digital models and formulas. They can potentially see the response of the engine in how it adjusts those different either blending or compounds and they kind of see what happens and you get that, that feedback loop, right, which we talked about when it comes to the strategy we talked about when it comes to wind tunnel testing. We, you know, it's this kind of you tell us what you need to achieve. We'll run a whole heap of formulas and models to see how you could achieve that. And the biggest challenge for her, which is not remotely surprising, is that the customer is never happy <laughs> in that the competitiveness of the sport means that every single race you're trying to get something more than the last race but at the same time that's what keeps them going and again I think the competitive nature of this sport kind of trickles down to every role that's involved you know your compound engineers need to be constantly trying to do better and better and better you know your delivery manager needs to be doing better and better and better and never happy with the you know result of their last outcome Yes, uh, always more performance, always less cost. Um, just make that happen. Thanks very much. I am Ferrari. Over to you. <laughs> Some of this as well. well. The efficiency is a really interesting one though, right? <laughs> yeah, lots of these. Um, the efficiency one I think is really interesting though because, again, I don't really think about that when it comes to oil, for example. I think about that in terms of how the entire the car runs as a whole but as we learn more about this, that's obviously a key part of it. Yeah. So, you know, if you chew through your fuel, you might not have enough to finish the race or have enough left for that ever important fuel mm. sample, which <laughs> multiple drivers Ridiculous. have been subject to dealing with the consequences of, which can be significant. Well, yeah, absolutely. Seb, you know, disqualified for his performance in Hungary. 
you know, for the second position because he couldn't have a fuel sample of a leader. Just stupid rule. Add it to the list. <laughs> and our very own DR as well. So, again, we don't really think about it as much because, you know, again, it's not something that's in front of us, right? We see the tyres. We see the strategists. Um, we don't see the fuel samples, right? So we don't really think about it as much because it's kind of not – front of mind, but it's changed dramatically and it will continue to change. We've talked about already how much it's changed from the kind of 80s and 90s area. But then if you kind of fast forward to 2014, you introduce hybrid engines. Now that obviously completely changed the game for people who are involved in this industry. So obviously the limits are then imposed on the amount of petrol the engines are allowed to consume. They had to look at alternative sources of power and all of these things then affect how they continue to develop, adjust and develop a product. Again, bring it forward again to 2022 and the new regulations meant that introducing ethanol, which is a bio component, also in road fuel, completely changed the products that they're working with. So, you know, it's a well-known blending component, which then is going to lower greenhouse gas emissions and that's going to stay now. So, you know, you bring in these regulations and it completely changes the the role that they're in, the product that they're dealing with, right up until potentially the next regulations, almost definitely until the next regulations come through. So the regulations that we see being brought in, again, we I think we think about it in terms of what the car looks like, um, you know, how big it's going to be, how close the racing is going to be, but you've also got these you know, chemists back at, um, you know, Shell or wherever who are then going, oh, my goodness, <laughs> we need to create a whole new yeah. type of fuel. How, what's that going to look like? Um, and as we know, FIA is trying to decarbonise motorsport even further, which means that when the next set of regulations come in, you know, they're already looking at what that's going to be. They don't know yet, to be clear. And it's really interesting I think we said once you bring in those new regulations, they'll they'll play with different compounds and that type of thing. But the overall structure is kind of there to stay until they they bring in new regulations and and the the power units or 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 cars change completely. But to be clear, they're not sitting around for three years doing nothing. You know, they're trying to understand the different components and figure out what that next generation fuel is going to look like. And this is, again, um, I found quite fascinating in that interview interview with the Australian Financial Review. This was actually much earlier in the year in the lead up to the Aus Grand Prix. Dr. Loretti explained that she said, you know, well, I don't think it's going to be 100% ethanol. That's not going to be good enough for these types of cars. It could be synthetic fuels. It could be biofuels. At the end of the day, we know it's going to be a low emission fuel, but we don't really know <laughs> yet. You know, they they don't know yet what that that next piece is going to look like, but that's their challenge for for the coming years. Um, but similar to what we mentioned earlier, she kind of said, look, as long as we're still um, continuing to invest in kind of reducing emissions from internal combustion engines, as long as they're still on the road, F1 is valuable for us. Once, even, you know, even in several years' time, obviously electric vehicles are becoming a big thing now, we're still going to have a massive amount of these types of vehicles on the road. So it still makes sense for us to be investing in Formula One because it is our testing ground for all of these different types of biofuels, alternative fuels and that type of thing, which ultimately could end up in James's Subaru. Yes, not in my 86 because there's no 100 octane anymore and I can't afford <laughs> 98 to put it in it. <laughs> 
Oh dear. So just wrapping up with um, Dr. Loretti, just in terms of what her race weekend looks like. Um, ultimately, she kind of says, look, it's just an absolute privilege to work in motorsport because the innovation tra- challenge is just so big. But for her, she's kind of reached that point in her career where she's the person who is accountable for everything going well. So she basically says, I'm not at races and I have my phone on me all weekend. And if it doesn't ring, then I'm happy. But ultimately, she leads the analyst team end to end for F1. So that means that part of her job is just making sure that they've got the kind of the conditions to succeed really. And that's everything from the personal side of things, because as we've all, we're all aware and we've talked about quite a bit, you know, this sport, especially if you are attending tracks, just eats away at your personal life. So making sure that they're kind of you know, content in that way, but then also you know, safety at race weekends, knowing that they they know what they're there to do, have the right skills, the right mindset to do that job. And that's her That's her job is to make sure that those things are present. And she says that she doesn't like to micromanage. She said, you know, look, we all agree on the, the bigger goals. We all know what needs to be achieved on a race weekend, but it's up to the people who are at the track as to how they go about it. Um, so we do our best to let people who are present and in the track and have all the information around them grow and be empowered but ultimately she still is accountable and she has a huge team under her you know these are fuel blenders oil blenders analysts lab technicians also not necessarily at tracks but the formulators and developers who are kind of the brains behind these products um highly experienced and um skilled individuals and she said you know their their work might be more based in the office but they love their job and part of their job is staying really close to the product and the customer so she kind of said you know any opportunity we can give them to talk about what they do and be the spokesperson for their work they'll they'll do that and then also of course it's the logistics which is going to be even more interesting with the 175 races that we have next year (laughs) which is about getting all of the products to the right (laughs) to the right track at the right time um, so that is obviously a big effort as well, especially for the away races that are that are not based in Europe. Wrapping up, we talk about always the kind of, you know, working, being a female working in, in motorsport and there's a couple of interesting elements here for her. First of all, as I mentioned, kind of touched on a bit earlier, I was that Dr. Loretti decided that this was kind of her ultimate goal but this was something that she would target later, slightly later in her life. She said, you know, it was always my objective to be in the motorsport team and kind of be leading this team, but mm. I was ready to set that target for later. So she said, you know, again, she's like, I understand the want, especially as a woman coming into the sports going like, right, I'm going to just do everything I can in the first kind of 10 years to achieve as much as possible. But instead she goes, well, I'm just going to learn everything that is required for that but right now my immediate priority, which is also an objective, is to build my family. Um, so now it's time for my family role and then come 2022, which has been this role for a few years now, it's time for this senior role in motorsport. And she said, you know, I've got two teenage boys and they're happier when I'm not at home. So the time <laughs> is perfect. <laughs> but, again, just a, you know, this is, a, this is such a big challenge for a lot of women working in intense industries like, like sport like motorsport, Formula One in particular, trying to figure it all out. What order you do? Do you do things in? Is someone who's perhaps taken a slightly different approach to other people who who we've talked about, um, who might be still be actually quite quite young and ha- haven't had to tackle that juggling yet? Um, and for her, she has. And so she said, "Look, I set short, medium, long term goals." And again, 
just her perspective taking is fascinating because she's able to say, what is my current priority, medium term, long term, and keep an eye on the medium and long term, build all the skills, get the experience, and then do what I need to do right now. But it didn't mean for her giving giving any of that up. It was just about doing it at the right time. What a great person to profile and someone, you know, in a, in a slightly, again, slightly different area of the sport that uh, doesn't get a lot of publicity. So, look, well done. Thank you. And I've got to say well done because you are now holding the entire Lakeside Drive ship up, as I said to you before we started recording. This is <laughs> genuinely becoming people's favourite part of Lakeside Drive. So, listener, if you enjoy this, and you haven't yet left a review, head on to Apple Podcasts, leave a review and tell me that Freya is your favourite part of Lakeside Drives <laughs> because we, uh, we know that this is, this is an incredible thing to do and, and it's so, gr- so great to, to have opportunities to learn a little bit more about certain different things. We can't wait to also get some people to interview for you as well, Freya. I know that's not too far away for you being able to have some chats with these Awesome people, but yeah, at this point, the the profiling is phenomenal. It's like you do this professionally or something. I don't know. Who would have thought? But do you know what one of the coolest thing is, and something I think we can take away from Doctor Loretti today is on personal side. She said I've always been an F one fan. So when she does get in a position of meeting you, whether it's drivers or team principals or other kind of significant figures, she goes, oh, yeah, no, I've got to control my fan side of things. You know, I'm an Italian. I (laughs) was a Ferrari fan and now I'm, you know, head of the team that's providing all of these, you know, fuels and other products to to Ferrari. And so she said, oh, yeah, no, absolutely, I have to be able to have to be able to control my fan side and and keep that balanced. Mm. So... There's hope for the rest of us who are fans first to work in motorsport um, and be able to keep our fan side under control whilst being the epic professionals that we are. And I love that about it. I think you can see a lot of people working in Formula One who might be trying to play it pretty cool and that type of thing. And she goes, oh, no, I'm a massive Ferrari fan. I just have to learn to keep that under wraps on occasion. But, um, you know, it still gives her a great feeling when, when she sees them win which is very irregularly. So she has good feelings very, very, very occasionally. (laughs) Well, hilariously, her favourite race was not actually a race that Ferrari won at. It was Zandvoort 2021. But she said, you know, much like the Ferrari fans initially, she's like the fans were just so passionate. It was just this massive party. But, of course, for them there it was one of the opportunities to meet with a lot of people who they'd been on Zoom with for years Mm. and so it was almost like Mm. a a giant Italian family reunion surrounded by orange fans. But, (laughs) again, that just tells you so much about what she she loves about the sport and the people that she works with that, you know, her favourite almost kind of remarkable weekend wasn't even a race that they won out. It was because she got to reunite with colleagues in an epic environment. I was like, that's that's pretty cool as well. Yeah. Well, there's not going to be many wins in Ferrari's future, so she needs to get used to enjoying non-winning races. <laughs> well, I'm sure they hold on to what's important to them. But, yes, A indeed, lack of strategy. There's got to be other things that keep you going other than wins. Otherwise, uh, you could be in a bit of a tr- bit of trouble depending on which, which team you, you are behind or supply or work for. But that's it for Free Practice Fridays with Freya and Frank God. That's over because um, it's actually very late on a Thursday night. <laughs> the other one of the names that came in when we first started doing this was like, what was it? It was like, um, thank God it's Fridays 
with Freya or something like that. Yeah. It's like, yep. Yeah, I like that. I like that it's a thing on a Friday that you can look forward to. Um, but like James said, one of the ways that you can support us is by going on to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Obviously, when you do that, you'll be talking about how Freya is the best part of Obviously. Lakeside Drive and how her episode has become you know, your favourite part of the week mm-hmm. and what a great addition to the team, mm-hmm. You know all these sorts of things. Don't put words in your Just mouth. Just lay it all in there. Feel free to F- leave As many synonyms as awesome as possible. those lines. <laughs> Mixed metaphors, we love it, go for it. But you can also support us by subscribing to the YouTube channel, pick up some merchandise, um, or, of course, you can jump onto our Patreon link via the link in the description, which several people have done already, and we appreciate it so, so much. Um, You're all absolute legends. But that's it for us this week. Thanks for joining me, James. Absolute pleasure as always. No worries. See ya. How we turn nothing into something astounds me every time. I don't get to start singing this time. That makes me upset. Thank God for that. Do you know someone actually, so the same person who came, the same person who came up to me and said that they thought last week's was one of their favourite episodes yet also said, I was surprised by the quality of your singing voice. Ooh, I was like. She's easily, she's she easily said, surprised. Uh, yeah. And I was like, okay, here we go, here we go. Mm. Option three for my career at this uh. point. Professional happy birthday singer. Could be the next Delta Goodrum. I'm just saying. And if that puts me up next to Robbie Williams, then, you know, then dream made.